Welcome to this episode of the Greenville Oaks Message Broadcast. The mission of the Greenville Oaks Church of Christ is to inspire people to follow Jesus because we are convinced that following Jesus is the best way of life possible. Find out more about Greenville Oaks or connect with us online at greenvilleoaks.org. As always, we ask that you subscribe to, rate, and review our podcast. It makes it easier for others to find us. And now, on to this week's message with Lead Minister Colin Packer. church. It is uh, good to be with you. And I want to encourage you as we begin this morning to open your Bibles or uh, turn, scroll on your phones to uh, the book of Genesis. We're going to start in the first book of the Bible today. I'm going to read a long section uh, today. So I want to ask you to uh, keep your attention here as I read this text. It's Genesis 22 is where I want to read the story today. This uh, story is about Abraham and the call to sacrifice his son Isaac. It's one of the most challenging and problematic passages that many talk about in the entire Bible. It's probably the, uh, the text that I get the most questions about from people who are struggling with their faith about particular passages. This one in particular seems to draw concerns and questions. And so maybe you come in this morning with a question about this God. And I hope we'll leave today with a greater sense of what this passage is trying to do and how God is good even in the midst of problematic passages like this one. So I want to read from Genesis chapter 22 beginning in verse one. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, father... Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. 
And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you've done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants and they set off together for Beersheba. And Abraham stayed in Beersheba. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, you are the eternal God. You are God who knows all things, sees all things, hears all things. And you're the God who desires to bring things to shalom once again, to fullness, to the wholeness and peace of your world. God, right now we... uh, We live in a world that we do not see that peace. We live in a world where cries and lament are all around us. And we see passages like this about violence commanded, and it uh, it strikes our hearts, God, that, uh, that we want a different way, and we know that somehow this story is not the fullness of who you are. It's just a start to who you are. It gives us a glimpse of who you are that you'll provide in a later date than this story in Genesis. And so, God, help us to see this morning with clear eyes. Let us hear with clear hearts and unstopped ears. And I pray this morning you would pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in our hearts. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Well, what do you do with a story like that? This passage is a classic example of the kind of story you find in the Bible that causes many people to ask, What does a story like this about a man named Abraham and his son possibly have to teach us here centuries later? And to be more specific, what kind of God would ask a man to sacrifice his son? That's the question in Genesis 22 to modern ears, isn't it? In Genesis 12, if we remember back earlier in a previous sermon in the series, we came across God who asked Abram to go. I want you to leave your family, your country, your household, and go to the land that I will show you. And what does the Bible say in verse 4 of chapter 12? So Abram went. So what will Abram do when he gets this call from God in Genesis 22? Well, we read again in verse 3 exactly what Abraham does. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. Same thing happens here. Abram goes. In Genesis 12, what do we call it when Abram strikes out? We call it faith, right? Hebrews 11 talks about that. Abraham was a man of faith who followed God's commands. But what do you call it in Genesis 22 when Abraham obeys God? Obedience? Blind faith? Foolishness? I mean, if this story doesn't bother you, you're not paying attention because it's one thing to say you'll obey God no matter what, and it's another thing to gather up wood and load up your donkey, make an altar, and tie your son to that altar, and raise the knife. Be honest this morning. You wouldn't have even gathered the wood, would you? But there's more to this story than we see at first glance. And to get to that point that I want to make, we'll first need to spend some time on a history of religion. I know what you all came for this morning. 
The history of religion begins with humans who came to the realization that their survival depended on things like food and water. And for food to grow, it needs sun and water in proper proportion. Too much water and things wash away. Not enough and they die. Too much sun and plants wilt. Not enough and they die as well. And these basic observations about the world brought people to the conclusion that they were dependent on some kind of unseen forces that they could not control for their survival. And the belief that arose is these forces up in the heavens someplace beyond earth where the rain comes from, where the sun comes from, must be either on our side or perhaps sometimes when things don't come, they must be set against us. So then there comes a question. How do you keep those forces on your side? The next time you have a harvest and you take a portion of the harvest, you begin to offer that as a sacrifice. That's what the history of religion begins with. There's some forces out there. There's anxiety about these forces. We need water. We need sun. We need children. We need all those things that the the gods or the divine seems to provide to us. And so you offer a little grain. Because you need the forces, the gods, the goddesses, the divine beings on your side. Now imagine what happened when people would offer a sacrifice, but then it didn't rain or it didn't, the sun didn't shine. Or their animals got diseases or they didn't have children. Obviously they concluded that they hadn't offered enough. And so they would offer more. And if it didn't work the next year, they would offer more. And then they would offer more. Because what religion had built into it from the very beginning was something called anxiety. You never knew where you stood with these unseen forces that lived beyond the world. The gods must be angry. The gods are demanding. And if you don't please them, they'll punish you by bringing calamity. But then there's the other side. What if things went well? What if there was enough rain? What if there was enough sun? What if the the forces out there became not angry because you had appeased them with these sacrifices? Well, then you'd need to offer them thanks, right? But how would you ever know if you'd properly showed them how grateful you were? How would you ever know if you offered enough in gratitude to these forces? Well, you had anxiety either way, right? Anxiety if there isn't enough and it doesn't work out well to give more, and anxiety that maybe you weren't grateful enough for what had been given. And this is actually why the book of Leviticus is so revolutionary. I'm going to come back to that in a little bit. But whether things went well or things didn't, the answer was always sacrifice more, give more, offer more. Because you never know where you stand with these gods. And so you'd offered part of your crop. And then maybe the next year you'd offer a goat. Maybe a lamb, maybe a cow, maybe a few cows, maybe some birds. The very nature of early religion is that everything escalated because in your anxiety to please the gods, you kept having to offer more. In the midst of that system, what is the most valuable thing that one could offer? How could you show the gods that you were more serious than anybody else on earth? The answer is you give your firstborn child... That's the most valuable gift you could offer to the gods. And as you after more and more every year, this was the inevitable end of things. And this is hovering around the edges of the Old Testament is this question. Do we sacrifice our children? Other gods seem to demand these things in the Old Testament. We read about other nations that do this sort of thing. The question is, do we as the people of Israel who worship Yahweh, are we to do this as well? 
Which brings us back to Genesis 22 and to Abraham. When God tells Abraham to offer his son, I want you to notice in the story, Abraham is not surprised, he's not shocked. What does it say in the next verses? Early the next morning, Abraham got up and he loaded his donkey. Abraham gets right to it. He doesn't argue. He doesn't protest. He doesn't drag his feet. He doesn't even ask for instructions. He clearly knows what he's supposed to do. Of course. That's how Abraham grew up. We find out a little bit later in Scripture that Abraham's father was a guy named Terah, and it describes Terah as a man who worshipped other gods. Which means that Abraham, before Genesis 12, is in the midst of a polytheistic culture raised by parents who worshipped these divine forces I'm describing. Those gods demanded that which was most valuable to you. And if you didn't give it, you'd pay the price. That's how people saw things at this time. It's the worldview that Abraham would have grown up with. And this is where I want to pull back the curtain for a moment, let you know what I've been trying to do during this entire series. Because I think it's important for us to remember that the Bible is not the most accessible book in our library. It's full of customs, ceremonies, laws, and commands that seem very outdated in our world. But we tend to read the Bible as a story without a context. Some see it as a love letter penned to our hearts. Some see it as a rule book. Some see it as a book of wisdom. But the three rules for interpreting and understanding the Bible that are most important that I can hand to you this morning are these. Context, context, context. And Genesis 22 is a story that arises out of a particular context. And so the danger of reading Genesis 22 is that we would read it anachronistically. Now, what is an anachronism? An anachronism is a person or a thing that is placed in a time period where it does not fit. Maybe you need an example of this. In the last season of Game of Thrones, there was a live episode where a Starbucks cup was actually found in one of the scenes of the show. Now, after the live showing, they actually went back and corrected this and pulled this out of the footage. So if you were to go back now and maybe pick up the series, you wouldn't find this cup. But it created all these questions about, well, that's quite a mistake, right? That is an anachronism. And I would suggest we're often guilty of this with the Bible. When we read the story of Abraham and Isaac with all of our modern assumptions and expectations, we're bound to miss the point. See, the shocking part of Genesis 22 isn't that a God would demand child sacrifice. To our 21st century ears, that's the main question that arises out of this, is why would we worship a God who demands this sort of thing from Abraham? But at no point in Genesis 22 is Abraham surprised or shocked. At no point does he hesitate. He knew this day was likely going to come from the moment this new God named Yahweh called him. The shocking part of Genesis 22, the revolutionary point of Genesis 22 is the answer the story gives to the question I posed at the beginning of the sermon. What kind of God would ask a man to sacrifice his son? And the answer in this story is not this one. The other gods may demand your firstborn son, but not this God. And this is a revolutionary idea that is ahead of its time. This is a sacrifice and a sacrificial system that is ahead of its time. All the other gods, they're angry. They demand more and more to keep them appeased. 
In fact, this picture of these gods is not as foreign as we think it is, these ancient Near Eastern gods. Some of us grew up hearing about Yahweh, about the God of Israel, the God of the Father of Jesus, as if he was more like these ancient Near Eastern gods than maybe the picture that Genesis 22 actually gives to us. Some of you grew up hearing about these ancient Near Eastern gods. We just named it God, the one we worshiped. In many religious communities, the message goes something like this. If you would do these things, then God will do these things. And so churches begin to pick up on this kind of thing too. Religious communities. If you would step through these hoops, then God will do this for you. If you will go through these four steps, then God will do these things for you. But that's not the God we read about in Genesis 22. It's not even the God we read about in Genesis 15. If you remember about that story about the animals and God walking through and making a covenant with Abraham when he knows Abraham and the rest of us are going to be unfaithful. This is a story. This story is about this God giving something to Abraham. This God gives, this God blesses, this God provides is the language in this story. This was a brand new idea at the time. This is mind-blowing. This is groundbreaking. This is a story about a God who doesn't demand anything but gives and blesses and provides. You read what happens in the story and God holds Abraham back with a brand new idea that had never been conceived of before in ancient religion. Not that you bring the sacrifice, not that anxiety is there over and over again, but this God provides a ram in this story. And that's what Abraham calls this place, right? The Lord will provide. Because that's what God does for Abraham in this story. God provides a ram as a burnt offering in place of Isaac. And I love verse 14. Let me read it again. Genesis 22, verse 14. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. What do you think that might be a prophecy of? The Lord will provide. It's interesting the location of where this takes place, Mount Moriah. Second Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, there's an interesting story that's unrelated, but it ties a little bit more to the story of Moriah and what will come in the days ahead. 2 Chronicles 3.1 says, Then Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem. Where? On Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David. So this promise could be a reference to the temple that God is going to bring. God's going to provide his presence when Solomon builds the temple that's there in Jerusalem. God provides that. But centuries later, after Solomon, God will provide again on a hill near Jerusalem, won't he? God provides another sacrifice for us. Jesus goes up on a cross on a hill near Mount Moriah, perhaps close, perhaps this very place where Isaac sits on this altar. Instead of providing another ram, you notice that detail in the story in Genesis 22, don't you, over and over again. Your son, your only son. And what does John 3.16 tell us? God gave his only son on a cross. So the same place that Isaac was spared is the place where God didn't spare his only son on our behalf. We were spared as God's children. And on that mountain, God provided Jesus as a sacrifice for us. Now, I want to talk a little bit broader than just Genesis 22 and the question of Abraham and Isaac this morning, or even about Jesus and that sacrifice. I want to go to the book of Leviticus 
which uh, you ought to be able to find by just letting your Bible fall open, right? I mean, it falls open there somewhere. Leviticus 1, verse 1, I want to read to you this morning. How many of you, Leviticus is your favorite book in the Bible? I'm not seeing any hands. One, we got one hand, all right? I'm, I, I want to talk with you after, Cody. I want you to see how profound a book this is. This is a profound book. It's trying to do an incredible thing in the midst of Israel's journey. We've talked through Genesis and God getting to know Israel. We've talked through Exodus and the liberation that God brings, the law that God brings. We talked about last week. But listen what happens in Leviticus. Watch how this book begins. Leviticus 1 verse 1. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Verse 1 is a remarkable verse if you've read Exodus. Because what's the situation in Exodus 1 verse 1? first chapter of Exodus, what we find out is that God has been silent for 400 years. God has been nowhere to be found. But God shows up, He delivers His people, He delivers the law to the people of God. And in Leviticus 1 verse 1, let me read it again, the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Amazing things have happened between Exodus 1 and Leviticus 1. This God has drawn near to His people. This God is speaking with His people. Can you imagine the gift that would have been for these people? Things have changed. God is no longer absent or silent. See, in Leviticus 1.1, God speaks to Moses, the leader of Israel. And remember, the people of God in slavery in Egypt, now they're free. They're trying to become a people who discover what life after slavery should look like. And so Leviticus answers a particular question. How do you interact with the divine after he's been silent. How do you interact with the divine after this God has freed you, after this God is trying to order society as you enter into the promised land later? He's trying to order things differently than how Egypt had ordered things. We saw last week and the week before how there's this oppression, there's this liberation that God brings. And when they establish themselves as a new kind of tribe in the promised land, God doesn't want them to repeat the same mistakes that Egypt makes. So Leviticus provides wisdom to Israel so they can begin to relearn what it means to be human. So they can learn how to order society in a better way. So the book begins with seven chapters that are pretty boring. What they do is they give instructions about five different kinds of sacrifice that Israel is to offer voluntarily. Some are, compuls- are, are compulsory as well. Those offerings are this. They're about burnt offerings and how to sacrifice, about grain offerings, about fellowship offerings, about sin offerings, and about guilt offerings. Seven chapters on how to do that. Now, the word offering is a translation of the Hebrew word korban. This Hebrew word includes the idea of coming near, coming near, which is interesting in light of Leviticus 1. God is coming near to his people. This God is not distant. This God is not uh, petulant or detached. You can come near to this God and have a relationship with God, which is a new idea as well in ancient culture. Now, it's interesting as you read through these five sacrifices, the first three of these sacrifices, the burnt and the grain and the fellowship, were all voluntary offerings. These are not offerings that you have to give. They're offerings that are available to you in certain scenarios. These offerings are about gratitude. They're about joy and peace and contentment. And again, not everyone is required to bring these offerings. But the last two sacrifices are offered for the moments you realize, not that you're grateful, Not that you have joy and contentment. These last two, the guilt and sin offerings, are there when you know you've done wrong and you need to make things right. So when you're filled with gratitude, you can offer a burnt offering, a grain offering, or a fellowship offering. 
Now, why would these three offerings be voluntary? Why, why would you do this if you're overwhelmed? Why would you feel the need to kill animals, right, to sacrifice in order to somehow communicate your gratitude to God? And why is this relevant for a group of people who've just been released from slavery in Egypt? Well, think of what they've just been through. These are people who need to express their joy and gratitude. And one day, when they make a mess of things, they're going to need those other sacrifices to express how they've made a mess of things and how they need to repent and make things right between God and themselves and one another. See, the book of Leviticus doesn't begin with judgment, condemnation, and death. The book of Leviticus begins with how you express your joy and your gratitude and your contentment to God. These people are learning to be free for the first time. And the first thing they're taught, I want you to hear this because this is what we need to teach our children. This is what we need to be reminded of in the midst of our liberation and what God does for us. The first lesson God gives them in sacrifice is not about how you kill animals so that your sin can be atoned for. That'll come later. The first sacrifices, the first three, are what we do to express to God our gratitude for what God has done. This is about joy. It's about gratitude for all that God has done. They sing when they pass through the waters to the other side of the Red Sea. They dance on the other side. And God says, there's more you can do to offer your gratitude to me. The fourth and fifth sacrifices are about what you do when you've wronged someone. In other words, here's how you can make amends with one another. Here's how you can come before the divine to show your awareness of having harmed the shalom between God and humans and the shalom between God and and one another. What what are your experiences of working with others in tight quarters? Does it always go smoothly? Are people perfect? Are you able to act flawlessly with people? Or in those tight spaces, do you regularly make a mess of things? Is there often constant tension that has to be resolved? Or maybe that just continues to be unresolved? These sacrifices that God gives Israel has something to do with how people who are in tight quarters learn to live in a harmonious relationship once again with each other, to make reconciliation. These sacrifices give the people of Israel something to do to live at peace with everyone. And this, again, is revolutionary. In a world where people stood always anxious about where they stood with the gods, the tabernacle, this tent of meeting, and the sacrifices that are able to be offered, they offer people a way to know that they can come near to God and a way that they can learn to come near again with one another. This isn't about an angry God. This isn't about a relationship with a God that you don't know whether you're on this God's good side or bad side. This isn't about the anxiety of wondering where you stand like all those other sacrifices that were out there. Leviticus opens with, I'm near to you. God speaking to to Abraham, or or to, to Moses. There's a whole new way of being human they're being invited into. And you can come near, and in the expression of your joy and your gratitude, the divine wants you to know you're in good standing. You are pleased. You're pleasing to this God. And these sin and guilt offerings have a way of bringing humans into reconciliation with God and with one another. We can think of these sacrifices as primitive and barbaric, but these sacrifices offer a clear way to mend relationships between God and us and between us and one another. 
Would you say that's relevant in our world? So when you look at this and you say, why all this slaughtering of animals? Why all this blood that has to be spilled? Which, by the way, just a commercial, the blood bank is open for you at any point during the day. Why all this slaughtering of animals? I want, you, I want to just say, wait, wait, wait. All of this is undergirded with a profound respect for justice, for equality, for fairness, and for the truth to come out in a court of law. It talks about when this goes wrong, this is what we do in response. We're still talking about the very things Leviticus was trying to give us a way to figure out with one another. And ultimately at the cross, Jesus becomes a once-for-all sacrifice that puts an end to this need to continuously slaughter these animals. The cross becomes an opportunity to leave behind the idea that God needs blood. That's the giant leap that's happening at the cross. Is that all this bloodletting that's been happening with all these animals to make sure that you can come close to God and that you can come close to one another, let Jesus come and, and remove the need for blood to be the response that brings forgiveness. Look at the way that the writer of Hebrews talks about this in Hebrews chapter 9, talking about this death of Jesus on the cross. Hebrews 9 verse 22. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared, listen to this, once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Leviticus is the beginning. It's the origin of a brand new idea of how humans are going to interact with God, of how humans are going to learn to interact with one another. And the story of Leviticus is revolutionary still. It says you can draw near to God. You can know where you stand in relationship to, to this God without the anxiety of all those ancient Near Eastern religions. And that makes all the difference. And the Gospels reveal to us an even better gift, don't they? It's not just that you can draw near to God. It's that God wants and chooses to draw near to us. That's what the birth of Jesus introduces into the world, right? God comes close. He moves into the neighborhood. He takes on flesh and blood. And Jesus offers himself as a once-for-all sacrifice that ends the sacrificial system, that puts an end to all these sacrifices. Some of you grew up hearing things a lot more like the ancient Near Eastern religion than even the book of Leviticus. And it was that if you'll do these things, then God will do these things. If you'll step through these hoops, then finally God may be pleased. He may be appeased in his anger toward you. That's not the God we worship. Those are the Babylonian gods. Those are those Greek myths we read about. Those are these primitive and barbaric gods. This God, though, this God is ahead of, of this God's time. For the first Christians, repentance 
was never, if you will do these things, it's dependent on you for God to be able to deliver something in response. The confession we give is while we were still sinners, Christ made the first move. Christ made a once-for-all sacrifice. And is there a response to that? Of course there is a response to that. But to get things backward in the order to think that we somehow initiate the movement of God's forgiveness into the world is to get backwards, and it's to go back to a primitive religion that's behind what Judaism and Christianity is trying to establish. What God says in His covenant with Abraham all along is, you can't get this right. I'm going to walk through the animals before you. I'm going to make a covenant, not because you're going to be faithful, but because I'm going to be faithful. And in Genesis 22, we see the same story. This is a God who provides for us, who gives who blesses. And so repentance was never about trying to get God to do something because God has already made peace with all things. And if you're repenting so that God will somehow show up and do something for you, you're bargaining with the wrong God. Because this God is unlike all of the other gods. This God doesn't demand child sacrifice. This God provides. This God does not leave you anxious, wondering where you stand in relationship to this God. This God allows you the confidence to know you are in right relationship and to know that you can move into the presence of God and move into His mission. Because this God provided a sacrifice ahead of its time. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, the anxiety of the ancient world is still our anxiety that sits with so many of us today. God, I pray that you would remove from us any picture of religion, any picture of who you are that is inconsistent with even the book of Leviticus. Even the story of Genesis 22, these problematic stories, if we read them backwards and we read our own ethics into it, God, there are times that we read it and we think, how, why would we worship a God like this? But if we enter into the story and it's time, we realize that you are always ahead of us. You are down the path. You see things we cannot see. And you saw the anxiety of the people of Israel in the midst of walking out of slavery, trying to become human once again and wondering, would they ever know if they would be right with you? And you said there's a way. And so, God, we repent of any religion that is not religion of you. This religion that looks more like the ancient Near Eastern gods. And we want to come into relationship with you for what you've done for us. God, we thank you that you have drawn near to us over and over again. In our individual lives, we can speak a word that even in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our struggle, in those moments that we were left alone and isolated, we sense your presence as we look backward. In the midst of our concern now and questioning of you, I want us to confess again that we still believe you're near. And God, we've made a mess of things in this world. We are not right with one another. But God, your desire is that your kingdom of people would be a holy people who are set apart, who live as a different kind of tribe, bringing reconciliation, bringing equality and unity, God, in ways that our world can't imagine it can be brought. And I pray you would give us imagination to unite a world that is divided, to make amends for the sins of our ancestors, to make amends for our own sins. And to be able to be brought to one with you and with one another again. 
What it means to sum up the law and prophets you made clear last week to us. It's to love you with our whole hearts, with all our minds, our strength, and our soul. And it's to love our neighbors as ourselves. So God, would you reframe our vision of what you are and who you are and what these sacrifices are about and what Jesus has done for us to realize that blood is no longer needed because of the perfect gift. But amends and reconciliation is still needed. So may we be agents, ministers of that reconciliation. I ask God this morning you would forgive us our sins that you would restore to us the realization of right relationship. And God, if there are any of us today that have not made that step to walk into repentance, not because we make the first step ourselves, but in response to the good news of Jesus on the cross, God, would you prompt our hearts to make that decision this morning so that we might be rightly reconciled with you so that we can begin the process of walking in reconciliation with others. I pray this this morning in the name of Jesus, the once for all sacrifice. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the Greenville Oaks Message Broadcast. We hope this message helps you to inspire people to follow Jesus because you're convinced, like we are, that following Jesus is the best way of life possible. Connect with us on Facebook. You can find and like our page at Greenville Oaks. Discover more about the Greenville Oaks Church online at greenvilleoaks.org.